0: Along in your Bible here, I'll say, read for us 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know that identity has been and I think is going to continue to be quite the the hot topic in our culture and our society. Everything is wrapped up right now in the discussions about who are you? What is it that defines you? Is it outward appearances in whatever forms or whatever preferences or hobbies or things that you give yourself to, the, uh, the affinity groups that you align yourself with? Where does your identity come from? In what does it reside? And I think a part of our culture's confusion around identity it reveals what we worship. What it is that we're, we look to to uh, Provide us that source of identity is revealing something about what it is that we worship. It's showing, like, this is what I value above everything else. That I would say, I am chiefly identified by this thing. That's what you worship. As we come to our text this morning, here in First Corinthians 6, Paul is eager to ground us in our identity, what is it that you are going to look to and how is that identity going to go on to shape all facets of life? That's what he's doing uh, throughout this letter, right? That, that he begins First Corinthians in, in chapter 2, verse 2, saying that throughout his ministry to the church at Corinth, he has been eager to make nothing known but Christ and him crucified. And he continues through this letter to exhort this church and, and by virtue of the inspiration of the Spirit to exhort us how it is that the resurrection of Christ, the crucified Christ, who of course, Paul would say, did not remain dead, but is in fact risen, as he gets to you later in the letter, making that, that very point explicit. How is it that the crucified and risen Christ changes everything about who you are, about what you do, about what you give your time and energy and resources, money to it's shaping all of our identity. The, the person and work of Christ shapes every aspect of life. So we see throughout the letter that from who it is that you regard as examples to follow, to lawsuits, marriage, to your vocation, sex, to, to food, church services, to where you spend your money, Paul is making the point through this letter that all of it, all of it is changed, all of it is transformed by applying the good news that Jesus has died for sinners and that he is now risen and reigning. So there is no facet of our lives where we are not to ask, how does the empty tomb change how I do this? How how does it change how I wash the dishes, change diapers, pursue retirement, Whatever it may be, how does the resurrection change how I do this? Or how is it that the empty tomb changes who I am? How does it shape my identity? One commentator, put it this way. Theology for Paul, it's not an abstraction, but the application of the gospel to life in the real world. Those who concern themselves with grace without equal concern for behavior— have missed Paul's own theological urgencies to the exhortation that we receive, right? There is a, a kind of life that we ought to live, and if we're just thinking of, oh, like, the doctrine, the, the theology of it, and it's not coming to bear in how we live our life, if our lives are not increasingly like Psalm 15, if they're not increasingly shaped by the realities of the resurrected Christ, then we're just playing games, that's, that hasn't actually shaped our identity. It's just a cognitive reality. So church, my aim for us this morning is that we will see in one way how it is that Paul is doing. How he's applying the gospel to life in the real world. How he's applying the significance of the resurrection to our lives. In order to do that, we, we need God's help. So let's pray. So Father in heaven, we're pausing again as we're coming to your word, that we might know your word and that we might have lives transformed by it. So would you help us? And we know that we need your help because the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they're folly to him and he's not able to understand these things because they're spiritually discerned. And so would your Spirit come and help us to discern what it is that your word has for us? and how our lives need to be brought into greater conformity to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let me set the table a little bit here on, on what's going on in, in chapter 6, what Paul's doing just before our passage that I read this morning. Paul is, is speaking in the first, uh, first eight verses here of, of chapter 6 about this issue of lawsuits. So apparently the Corinthians were, were having some, some trouble in their disagreements with one another uh, he primarily has in view here civil lawsuit kind of disagreements, right? He's not talking about criminal cases. Uh, Paul makes plain that in Romans 13 that there is a, a proper role for the government uh, when it comes to uh, enforcing good order, right? God has entrusted to the government uh, the sword to uh, to do good. That's not what's in view here uh, when, when Paul is speaking in these first eight verses of, of chapter 6, he's got civil lawsuits in mind, that there is some financial disagreement going on. Perhaps there's been a loan that has been made between two brothers in Christ, and one is trying to exact too much interest from the other, and the other feels like he's being taken advantage of, and there's this disagreement. And so instead of resolving this disagreement among themselves, they're they're bringing their case before a civil magistrate. They're bringing their their lawsuit uh, to the courts, and Paul is saying, brothers, this should not be so. you you should not be interacting with one another in this kind of a way. When you do this, when you take these ultimately trivial cases to the courts, what you're doing is bringing shame upon the name of Jesus. You, You guys need to figure this out yourselves. After all, Christians are ones who will judge alongside the risen Christ at the end of the ages. And if that's who we are, what we will judge, how can you not figure out this little trivial thing between the two of you. Like in the grand scheme of things, this is, this is small peanuts here. Like you, you, you shouldn't have to go to the, the secular courts to resolve this. So he's saying instead, brothers, what you ought to do is one of two things. One, either handle it yourself, figure it out yourself, take uh, these trivial matters and, and figure it out among yourselves or even better yet, overlook it just overlook it, let it go, right? It is better to go ahead and overlook the wrong committed against you by another confessing Christian than to bring this before non-Christians and ask for them to decide between the two of you and and thus bring shame on the name of Christ, that those who follow Jesus can't even figure out such things like these. So the Church of Corinth, they're wronging and defrauding each other They're making a mockery of the bride that Jesus died for and rose to unite to himself. What he's saying is they're acting like unbelievers. They're acting like non-Christians. And so we come to verse 9. And Paul brings a pretty strong rebuke here with his rhetorical question. He says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's a rhetorical question, right? It's not an actual question. He's making a point by by saying this, by by raising this question. He's making a statement. Do you not know? (laughs) Yes, of course they knew. Of course the Corinthian Christians knew that, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, Paul was with them for a year and a half, laboring among them, teaching them the very word of God. They knew They knew that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet they had failed to take that knowledge and and press it down from their brains into their hearts and into all the corners and and facets of life. They They had the theological point there, check the box, but it hadn't pressed into all aspects of life. And that's why Paul is driven here in verse 9 To warn them to not be deceived. You guys aren't tracking here with it. Is what he's saying to the Corinthians. You're not tracking with the the implications of the gospel. And and so you are in danger of being deceived. Church, you need to be on guard is what he's calling them to. Because have no doubt about it. If your life is marked by anti-God rebellion... If your life is marked by that kind of sin, you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will go to hell. Like, that's what he's talking about here in this question. The unrighteous who are marked by anti-God rebellion, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, and God will send them to hell. And that's what he says to the church like This is the warning he's giving to Christians that they need to hear, that, that we need to hear, lest we be deceived. And, and thinking that, that our manner of life is just fine. That we can go on living however it is that we want. Not conform to the, the commands of scripture at all. And like, hey, I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I signed the card, I served in the nursery, I did all the things. Like, I'm good to go. But if you continue to walk in sinful rebellion against God, Paul's saying, you won't inherit the kingdom. There there will be no hope of glory for you. You've been deceived. You've been deceived by your sin. And on the last day, Christ will sift you like wheat, and you'll burn like chaff. This is a warning of love. This is a pastor to his congregation, not wanting this this terrible destiny for them, but he wants so much more for them. He wants them to walk in the fullness of life. He wants them to have a hope in this life and in the next because of what Christ has done. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He wants them to walk in holiness. It's a a warning of love. And he he doesn't want you to be among them either among this category of the unrighteous who will not inherit life. He doesn't want you to follow after anti-God rebellion, and that's why he goes on to provide this list that is recorded here at the end of verse 9 and into verse 10. Ten examples, ten examples of what your life ought not to look like. So this is like the counterpart to Psalm 15. Here's what the the blessed life looks like. If you are following after God, like here's here's what your life will will look like increasingly. But if you are not, if you are going headlong after sin, even though outward appearances might look wonderful, if you are giving yourself to these kinds of things, be warned. you're, You're being deceived. So when Christians take their trivial claims to the courts or rather wrong and defraud other believers, rather than turn that proverbial cheek, Paul's saying that they look like the unrighteous. They're asking to judge their disputes. They look like the unrighteous who who will not inherit the kingdom. But wronging and defrauding, those are are not the only telltale signs of being among the disinherited unrighteous. That's why he provides this list that he does. And he's wanting us to see how all-encompassing the life-altering effects of Jesus' resurrection are. That's what he's doing with, with this list, with this sampling of other forms of deceitful rebellion. Right? The wrong and defrauding are two uh, test cases of what it looks like to be among the unrighteous. And in this list, he's saying here are other ways that you can, can see that like this, is, this too would be exemplary of an unrighteous life that is in rebellion to God. And so this list, it, it is neither comprehensive, right? that's not saying like these are... The, the worst of sins, like these are, are all of the sins that the unrighteous do. And, it, and it's not uh, that, the magnitude that these are the worst of sins. So it's not, it's not comprehensive or the most heinous. Rather, what, what Paul is doing in capturing this list is leaving no area of life unchecked by the changing power of Jesus Christ. He's touching on, on all facets of life. And, and so, The list, he includes sin in the bedroom, sin in religion, sin in relationships, in work, in your life goals, in your social life, in your speech and demeanor. These these sins are are part of life that are are both public and private. Sins that are, are personal and relational. Paul is saying that if your life If it's marked by these kinds of things, if it's marked by by fornication, by any such impropriety, whether that is carried out with another individual or by yourself with a screen or a so-called novel, if your life is characterized or marked by stealing, by cheating people, businesses, or governments out of money, having one too many glasses of wine, of of having despicable, filthy speech, screaming at your wife or kids, of being a stingy scrooge, miserly with your resources. If you are marked by these kinds of things, you will face God's eternal judgment. You are the unrighteous who who will not inherit the kingdom of God? i 've been trying to say that very intentionally, that if your life is marked by these kinds of things, right, if, if you are characterized by sins like these, right, if you go on making a habit of sinning in these kinds of ways or, or other kinds of ways, right, that's what's revealing. About your identity, about the reality that you really don't know Jesus, that the realities of the gospel have not come to bear on your life in a saving way, that you will not actually receive the kingdom. Because, church, I, you, I, I trust that you know. Christians, we are not perfect. You know one another, you know that you're not perfect, that you haven't arrived yet that that we still sin, that we still sin against one another, that there are, there's still sin in our lives that we are walking by faith to mortify and calling on the Spirit to help us, to strengthen us in it and to change our desires so we don't love that thing anymore, but instead we would love Christ all the greater. Right? So, so we're not perfect. Christians are not perfect people. That's not the call that Paul is making for us in order to inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what he's after at all. That's not what I'm trying to convey. But what is necessary is that we have a life marked by faith in Jesus, a life marked by by turning from sin, that when we see it come up, when when we give ourselves to it, we, we turn from it in repentance and faith and follow after Christ and cry out in confession, Lord, help me, save me. Make me more like yourself. Right? That's, that's what the Christian life looks like. But what Paul is after is a, it, when he's condemning the, this certain kind of unrighteous living is where you just don't really care. Where you've got this pet sin that you just let sit there. In private maybe. You don't tell your spouse. You don't tell brothers and sisters, that you are in close fellowship with. You don't make that known. You don't confess it. And instead, you just coddle it and and keep it here private because it feels too comfortable. Because it feels too closely associated with who you are. So it's not perfection, but but progress that marks a Christian. And, And we must make progress. We, we must pursue holiness. But we don't do that in a manner of earning. We make the effort, the faith-filled effort, but it is not by earning that we will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's the point that Paul is driving to in verse 11. As he says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Fill up that sentence with all the redemptive historical grace of God. Such were some of you. These things, these ten sins that, that he is capturing on this list, these things were some of you. You, you gave yourself to these things. You were marked and identified by these kinds of sins. This is who you were. And, and other sins that aren't on this list, like those were the rest of you, right? It's not saying like uh, this list of 10 is it. And, and if you weren't uh, inclined towards a kind of sin that is referenced here, then like you're off the hook, Like, no, 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 there's all kinds of other sins that that marked the rest of us, that we gave ourselves to, other sins that we were. But that's not who we are any longer, right? That's who we were. These things are what marked you, marked me. But oh, what grace there is in the verb tense of, in that sentence, right? That we were these things, And we are no longer. Paul's making the point that when you heard that God had taken on flesh, when when he lived a sinless life, when he died in the place of sinners, and when he rose again from the dead on that glorious morning, and when the Spirit of God came and overcame your hard-hearted resistance, and you responded in faith and repentance, These things no longer defined you. These things are no longer you. Verses 9 and 10, this list, that is not you any longer. That's not where your identity resides. That's not who you are. It would be absurd to look at this list and think, okay, uh, greedy. It would be absurd to go on living the Christian life and be like, yeah, I'm a greedy Christian proud of it. I'm a greedy Christian. It's like, no, like you would never do that, partly because right, that's not an acceptable sin in our culture, right? I mean, like Bernie Madoff, right? I mean, the greed, like no one wants anything to do with someone who's greedy. We're all greedy to some degree, but it's not a, a culturally acceptable sin to, to boast about your, your greed. So you, you would never think of anybody saying like, oh yeah, I'm a greedy Christian, What's the big deal? I'm a greedy Christian. Like, no, like that's not who you are any longer. That's not who you you are. That's not your identity. That's no longer who you are. Such were some of you. You were greedy, but that's not you anymore. Because Jesus has died and and risen and transformed your life. You are made new. You are, are made righteous now. You gave yourself unrelenting to unrighteousness. But now, because of the resurrection of Christ, because the tomb is empty you're new. You're transformed. You are changed. Your identity has been renewed. Right? Or or, or now, because of all of this that God has done in Christ through His Spirit, you, you don't need to defraud and wrong one another. You don't need to bring your lawsuits against one another. You can resolve your issues yourself because Jesus is risen. So that is who we were. That There's no doubt about it. If you can't come to terms with that reality, you're not going to come to terms with the gospel. That's who I was, but it is who I am no longer. God has done a new thing by making us a new people. And and verse 11 says that we were washed, we were sanctified, and we were justified. As you read that, you might think like, uh, Paul, you've got your ordo salutis mixed up here, right? Like the justification didn't come last, you know, like... You've got things out of order, right? And that's not what he's after. He's not after trying to, to convey the, the theological progress of, of salvation. That's not his, his point here. He's not trying to lay out how it is that we got saved, but rather he's looking at a diamond from different angles to get the, the light glinting off in, in different ways, to glory in it, in different ways, right? He's not saying you were washed and then you were sanctified and then you were justified. That's not his point. His point is that Jesus saved a sinner even like me. Though I was like these things, I am no longer because of what God in Christ through his spirit has done in me and in you and in all who set their hope and faith in Christ alone. So, So church, you were washed. You're washed. Jesus has the power to cleanse you from all sin that you have committed or that has been committed against you. He can cleanse you from it. So that thought, that, that act, do, do you ever just feel too impure to come before God? those words that that person who you thought loved you, that that they spoke intentionally to cut deep and it has wounded you. The person who you thought would take care of you, but the way that they they touched you or the way that they talked to you and, and you feel tainted by it. church, Jesus can wash you. He can cleanse you. He can remove the shame of it entirely. He makes you new. He purifies his bride and he binds up those wounds. Church, you are sanctified. You're sanctified. Jesus has the power to set you apart from your prior way of life for his great purposes. Just because you gave yourself to a certain kind of life before Christ does not mean that you must go on identifying with that way of life. He set you apart from it. And and indeed, what he has done is he's pulled you from the the flame like a firebrand, and he now wields you in his mighty hand, to sear the ways of Satan in this world. He sanctifies you. He sets you apart that you might go back even to the relationships of that prior way of life that you might make Jesus known, that you might testify of the great redemption that you have benefited from, that you have received in Christ, that you were like that. You were that way, but you are no longer, and you have now been sanctified. You've been set apart for God's great glory and his purposes to make him known. That you might make disciples of those who presently will not inherit the kingdom of God. He set you apart for good purposes like that, church. And you were justified. You were justified. Jesus has the power to declare you innocent despite your guilt. He's pardoned you by suffering in your place and rising from the dead. That you would not only be not guilty, but that you would be made righteous. Not just that you would go free, unpunished, but that you would have the very righteousness of Christ, that that positive righteousness would be added to you and you would have the holiness of God. So do you feel the weight of guilt pressing down upon you and crushing you? Maybe the, the burden of how you lived your life previously, or even the sin that you gave yourself to this morning and the guilt just feels too much to bear. The hope of the gospel is that you are forgiven. The guilt is taken away. So if you hear the accuser standing over you saying, cursed, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things in the law. Is that you? Do you feel the accuser saying that to you? Well, Shane Shane wrote a song called Embracing Accusation. It is a wonderful theme. Embrace that accusation. You can say back to the accuser, you're right. You're right, I deserve curse because I cannot abide by all things in the law, but my hope is not in me to abide. My hope is in the one who abided on my behalf. He fulfilled the law for me. So yes, I deserve curse. But Jesus has taken the curse on himself by becoming a curse for me. So the guilt is gone. And you are justified in Christ. And verse 11 ends gloriously by pointing to how this wondrous reality is in fact brought about. As Paul says that this happens in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you, do you hear, hear how it is that this has come about? The, the implicit Trinitarianism that, that Paul is teaching us here? That, that the triune God has done this work to, to take you from where you were without hope in this world. Separated from God. Alienated from the covenants of promise. I know you've been in Ephesians. Hopefully that sounds familiar. Right? And he has set you apart and made you new and put you in a new position so that now you were, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in all this by the power of the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God has so worked to do this in you. This God, the Father, he has pursued you by sending his own Son and Spirit so that you might be folded in to this eternal community of love that has forever existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That you might fellowship with them. That you might be part of that relationship of love for all eternity. This is what God has done for you in Christ by his Spirit. It is this triune God who has made you sons and daughters of the kingdom. Co heirs with Jesus and beneficiaries of his spirit. So, church, if you walk out this morning with just another notch in the theological belt, if you just have, like, okay, yep, that's the gospel, I know it, like, check, I'm ready to move on, and you go on giving yourself to the things that marked your prior manner of life, be warned. We need to pause and give thought to the reality of Jesus' resurrection and how that changes our lives. The things that we've given ourselves to, the idols that we've pursued. We need to ask ourselves, how is it that I strive to find identity in something? Where am I looking to to anchor who I am? And that thing, it might be outright sin, or it might be morally neutral. But when we elevate secondary things to be primary things, we lose both the secondary and the primary. When Christ is primary, we we gain all. So where are you striving to find your identity? Is it in the resurrection of Christ? Is it in who he's formed you to be? Or is it sin that you just can't seem to be rid of? So if you're not asking yourself questions like that, if there's not even like a a prick in the soul, like, all right, Lord, search me, know me. I know how desperately wicked and deceptive my own heart is. If there's not that inclination to, to, to be made known before the Lord, it's an indicator that you are dangerously close of being deceived by sin and not inheriting the kingdom of God. Church, please pause, reflect, examine yourself. Don't be deceived. I want you to be an heir of the kingdom. Jesus, he he rose from the dead not to give good theology, but to form you into his image, to give you a new identity. So Father in heaven, we need your help in doing this. There's no hope for us if you're not in it. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. And there's no chance that we will discern sin apart from your Spirit's work. Because in our natural state, in our flesh, we love our sin. And we despise the Savior. And so we need you to come, O Christ by your Spirit, and meet us and and give us all that it is that we need. So help us in Christ's name we pray. Amen.